I'm Arthur. And I'm Susan. This is the Parent Talk Podcast. Managing the challenges of daily parenting. Thanks to our founding sponsor, Naturopedic, the nation's most trusted source of organic and healthy sleep products for your children. You can visit them at naturopedic.com. That's naturopedic.com. Well, welcome back, everyone, to Parent Talk. We, uh, Susan and I are really excited about this series of podcasts. It's going to be more than one on a big topic, which doesn't sound like it may apply to everyone. But I think by the end of these uh, podcasts, certainly even by the end of this one, you'll agree that when we talk about magical thinking, all kids go through it. And the, and the little wonderful secret is we adults continue to think magically after we grow up. So it's going to be an exciting discussion. Arthur, I'm glad you framed it that way because people will say, what the heck is magical thinking? You mean, you know, they sort of know what it means, but it is actually an enormously important developmental step that I have to tell you, I rarely read about or hear about in other podcasts or in books. So I am excited to talk to people about magical thinking. So I think we need to start with a definition. When we talk about magical thinking in young children, we're talking about when a young child thinks that his or her own thoughts or wishes or desires or what they do can influence the external world. And it is a universal part of growing up. It is a developmental step. I'm going to give you two examples. Let's imagine that a four-year-old goes to sleep at night and they're wishing, wishing for a pony. Maybe the mother read a fairy tale and a horse appeared. And the next morning she wakes up and she's surprised. There's no pony in her backyard. On the other hand, we can talk about a child who has a baby brother that they're not too keen on and the baby gets sick. And because the child felt that I'm sort of angry that mommy and daddy had this baby and I really don't like the baby, that the child was actually the cause of their little sibling's illness. When you think about the positive ones, like the pony, it sounds pretty benign, doesn't it, Arthur? I mean, you know, like everything is okay. But let's say that little girl wakes up and there's no pony in their backyard. A parent can be absolutely astounded. Why is this child so upset? Why are they crying? Why are they blaming us that there's no pony in their backyard, that their wish didn't work? That can really be confounding for parents. And if you don't understand the magical thinking part, it's very difficult to respond to your child in a way that's going to help them understand what's going on. And if a four-year-old thinks that his or her actions made their baby brother get sick, It brings up such an inner conflict in the child that they can have a myriad of reactions, many of them very, very negative. I just want to mention one thing about the word magical, because I think a lot of people think, well, I don't know that my four-year-old is like a magician and they think they're casting a spell. But the uh, derivation of the whole concept and that wording comes from the fact that adult magic, if you go to a magic show, and they're very popular these days, The theaters are packed to go see uh, great magicians, even now. And the reason is we enjoy the illusion that somehow the magician, through some action that has nothing to do with anything in the world, changes the world. And that's the sense, I think, that comes out so well in those examples you gave, Susan. There are things that we do, obviously, that change the world. You know, if I mow the lawn, the, the grass does get shorter. But we're talking about ideas and feelings and even actions that have nothing to do with what actually goes on in the world that we all deeply believe make the world move, that change it. And so we have the 
power and the responsibility. And we call it magical thinking because magicians on stage thrill us with that illusion that we can do something that has nothing to do with the world and utterly transform it. And when you're talking about remoteness, one thing that I'd like to add is that a child's reaction can seem so remote from the actual thing that caused them to feel that way, that it's very difficult sometimes to draw the connection between the child's unusual or challenging behavior and a baby brother's cold. It's really sometimes hard to make the connection. And that's what this podcast is about. So now my children, when they listen to these podcasts, I probably will all be giving me the cold shoulder, but I'm going to face that and talk about my son when he was about three years old. My husband and I just took a long weekend, much needed, and my three-year-old was well-prepared, staying with his grandmother and two much older and very loved big sisters, and still he was very angry about us going. And I have to do a little sidebar here. When parents feel feel like I've done it all right. I've listened to the books. I've listened to the psychologists. I've prepared my child. I've done everything right. And my kid's still mad at me or my kid still won't, you know, whatever it is that they won't or they will do. Children are human beings, unique in their feelings and their emotions. And even all of the things that you do right will not necessarily change the behavior in the way you want. I just, I had to add that because, you know, it does get very frustrating for parents. I think, why should I even bother? Well, we're going to tell you why you should bother. But anyway, I knew that when I got, when my husband and I got back from our little four day jaunt, I was going to get some pushback from Jeremy, but I didn't know that an hour, literally an hour after we returned home, I came down with a serious case of food poisoning. I think it was called Campylobacter. Is that something, Arthur? That's actually a bacterial infection. Well, whatever it was, they said it was food poisoning. Who remembers? Comes, Comes from food, other people, sure. I was really ill. I mean, fevers and the whole nine yards. And of course, I had to have people helping with the children. I really was out for the count. And while he was with the sitters, all of them reported as good as gold. And about 24 hours after I was really clearly better, well, you know what they say, it hits the fan. Well, it literally and figuratively did because (laughs) even though he had been using the toilet independently for months and months and months, we started having accidents. He was aggressive towards his sisters and aggressive towards me. Luckily, because I had some knowledge about magical thinking, I knew, aha, I think that Jeremy feels that he was so mad about us going that he was the cause of my pretty serious illness. And what I did is that I told him a social or a parallel story where I got to talk about his feelings and his worries and his wishes and his thoughts. But I, instead of talking about him, because that's a little too close to home, I used a child of the same sex and the same age. Now, this is a teaser, Arthur, because I'm going to wait to the end of the podcast to talk to you about exactly how you do a social story or a parallel story. But it makes an enormous difference the minute that you tell it and a child gets to relax and you begin to be able to help them through these difficult times. That's a powerful story. I bet a lot of our listeners are thinking, aren't kids sort of funny the way they think? And before we go further, I just want to make sure all our listeners know, I'm quite confident in this, Susan, that everyone who's an adult who's listening to parent talk right now, also engages in magical thinking. I do. I bet you do. In fact, I don't know anyone who can't. 
And we see it in uh, real life in adults, certainly in sad situations, like a loved one comes down with a horrible illness. And I think a large part in adults, magical thinking comes from the urge to explain things. It's a lot easier to be guilty than not have an an explanation. And so when something bad happens, we we embrace guilt because at least it's an explanation. And that guilt for things that we didn't have any guilt about, that's an adult form of magical thinking. That's when we think somehow because we had an argument with our spouse the night before, that's why they got diagnosed with a heart condition or a cancer the next day. Now, no one listening is going to think that they really believe that would happen ahead of time, but that we fall into that pattern of thinking around tragedies for sure, but also happens in fun things as well. You know, it's the bottom of the ninth and we're behind by one run, the bases are loaded. A lot of fans sitting in the stadium are thinking if they really concentrate really hard, the guy's going to hit the walk-off home run. I know I've been in that position, so it can happen all over the place, but we don't outgrow magical thinking. This is relevant to us as adults as well. Can I admit that I actually indulge in magical thinking on a almost a daily basis? <laughs> but when we talk about magical thinking in children, we first see it appearing around two and a half, and it really gets to at height three, four, five, six, begins to subside at around age eight. But even children up to 10 will really indulge in magical thinking. They're really not seeing the difference between the reality and the magical thought. Whereas an adult, like you know that if that kidder doesn't hit the ball out of the park, it really had nothing to do with it. You weren't thinking about it hard enough. Maybe. I mean. Yeah, well, well, maybe. I don't know, Arthur. You have pretty powerful thoughts. I, I do agree. So it is something that we do see in every single child that is typically developing. You know, parents, they say, I don't think so. I don't think so. Just think of your child at the housekeeping corner in school or doing pretend play. Well, all of that is, in a sense, magical thinking. That example inspires me to comment that uh, when the child's pretending, what's going on there? We might think, well, what? why do we do magical thinking? Sort of useless. But turns out when you're six months old, you really have absolutely no concept of changing the world. You don't even know the world's there. You're still part of your mom. So you go from a state where there's absolutely no impact on the world to a state where you're an agent in the world making things happen. Well, you can't go from zero to 60 all in one step. So pretending is a safe way to practice being an agent who changes the world. And magical thinking and pretend is essential for a child to learn, to practice this idea of I can make things happen. I can form a path to getting my way. So it's extremely valuable developmental step. And you can't go from a six-month-old who has no impact, conscious impact on the world to a six-year-old first grader who's really in the world and making things happen without going through this magical pretend phase. Absolutely. And I'm going to guess that most of the parents listening today believed in Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy or the Easter Bunny when they were little, right? And I would guess that most of these parents put a little gift under their child's pillow when their tooth comes out or talks about Santa bringing presents. And there is something incredibly charming and very special about children who are at this age where everything is believable and they're just so willing to embrace all of these magical and lovely thoughts. But there is 
the flip side, like my, for, that happened to my son, Jeremy. There is the flip side for magical thinking because unwelcome feelings will come into children. When they have had thoughts, they put them into conflict because most children, I think almost all children will get angry at their parents or hit their siblings or refuse to go to bed or brush their teeth one night. And then something happens and it can be something that seems so remote that again, the parents have trouble making that connection. And how does that impact in the child? The child can feel anxious. They can feel confused. And all of this is evidenced in their behavior. And that becomes the tricky part for parents. How can they talk to their child? And how do they even recognize that their child is not just acting out for no reason, but there's a very good and a very powerful reason? So, Arthur, what's one of the main reasons that kids will indulge in magical thinking, especially what happens to many, many children in their daily lives? Oh, there's so many ways. I'm curious which one you've selected. Well, I'm thinking of the birth of a new sibling because children are going to have a wide variety of feelings about the new sibling. We talked about this in our sibling rivalry podcast. So I will just briefly say that many, many parents like children to say, you love your new baby sister. She's so adorable. Give her a kiss. And here's what happens when a child is not allowed to express negative feelings about the child that, yeah, I do love this child, but I'm pretty angry that mom and dad decided that they needed to get somebody younger and cuter than I was to have in the house and taking up a lot of their time. So when the child doesn't have this outlet and then something happens with the baby, the baby gets sick. I guess I'm going through this because I saw that so often in my early childhood center that a sibling would have to be hospitalized or they became ill. The parents having to go back and forth to doctors and hospitals quite a bit. And I will tell you that I saw this time and time again, that a older sibling would have a complete and total change of behavior because they couldn't help not believe that it was the fact that they weren't so sure that they wanted this baby brother or sister. And now look what's happened. An important piece here is the guilty thought. So that can fester even if the child never ends up in the hospital. Sometimes kids get angry at the intervention. Maybe nothing happens, but they can still feel bad that they felt that way, particularly if they get the message from the parents, they better not feel that way. And I make a contrast between Tooth Fairy and Santa Claus and how it's really one of the best examples of how magical thinking can get you in trouble. So Tooth Fairy, you don't have to be a good child to get money if you lose a tooth. It doesn't matter if you finished your dinner or if someone got mad at you, you get your 25 cents or a dollar or whatever if your tooth is out. But kids who believe in Santa Claus are usually given the message, you have a choice of being naughty or nice. And if you're naughty, maybe Santa Claus won't show up. So it's the beginning of the sense that only if you have good thoughts and good actions will good things happen for you. And we see this with the birth of the newborn, because if the parent constantly pushes the older child to be loving, and that's the only acceptable thing they want to hear about, then that other feeling begins to feel a little naughty, right? It's like a rejected feeling. There must be something wrong with it. And there's something wrong with it. Well, maybe they're not in the hospital this week, but maybe something bad will happen to them in a month or two. And I know older sibs who are like in their teens and 20s who still harbor sense of resentment at the uh, second child coming along. And they feel a little bad about the fact that they ascribe all this magical power to it as a child, even years later. I am absolutely delighted that you brought in the fact that nothing bad really has to happen to the infant. Just the infant's being there is enough to cause the older child to feel like, oh, why are you here? Why are you here? And I just want to give you some examples of 
how a child might behave. And I will tell you, again, every child is unique in their reactions. But I've seen children who have refused to enter school because they're so mad at their parents for having this baby. Well, think of it this way. If I'm so mad at mommy and daddy, how can I be away from them? Something bad might happen to them if I'm not there to watch them all the time. I have seen children really have a very strong reaction. I have seen kids, even when you leave them with a familiar sitter at home, become hysterical. That separation from the parent can be a key way that children will react. Potty regression. This is huge. I mean, everyone sort of says, oh, don't potty train your child when there's a new baby coming. So people sort of know this in their in their brains. And it can happen. One child that I know very specifically, who is very verbal, told me in, in so many words that if he stopped using the potty and went back to a diaper, then maybe the baby would disappear because he could be the baby again. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty cool, right? I mean, that was that, that was some real good magical thinking there. So uh-huh. you really, yeah, I'm giving you sort of extreme examples, although they're not yeah, really. Yeah. We, I see them all the time too. Because they're not, they sound extreme, but they're really not. Another way that there's a lot of magical thinking that comes in into it is when there's a death of a loved one. We talked just last week on our last podcast about death and about how children can really sort of process the death of a grandparent, for instance, or or, or some other loved one. And um, magical thinking comes into play because the child may think, oh, I didn't give grandpa that kiss when he asked for one, or I, I got angry when I, when he wouldn't give me, um, a dollar for ice cream or something like that. And this becomes really difficult for the child because now the grandparent is gone. And you see what happens is the child's real grief for the loss of a beloved grandparent gets all mixed up in this magical thinking. And again, it's hard to make the connection because the child isn't just looking sad. The child may become aggressive. The child may become clingy. The child may stop using the toilet. I mean, it's hard to sometimes figure out what this child is really reacting to. Do you want to talk a little bit about like divorce and separation? Because I know a lot of families who are going through that sad time come to you as a pediatrician and ask for advice. For sure. So I would say magical thinking comes to its most powerful when a big event is happening that really has nothing to do with the the person. So divorce is an excellent, excellent example of that because I actually don't know of any instances. I don't know of any instances where the child caused the divorce. I also don't know of any instances where a child didn't feel like they did cause the divorce. That recipe of being completely powerless to have any impact on something that is a huge piece of your life is the best recipe possible for magical thinking. I mean, it's almost intolerable. Mom and dad come and sit down with the kids and say, you know, uh, we're going our separate paths, however they put that. But mom and dad still love you but we've decided we don't love each other and we're not going to be living together anymore. But it doesn't change how much we love you. That hasn't changed, but the kid's thinking, well, why is my world completely different if nothing's changed? You can't help but go to just the day before this family meeting, they pushed their sibling or, you know, the last week they really made a big deal about dinner and they hated what was being served. And they're trying to make me feel like I had nothing to do with it, but I know that they're unhappy and part of it must be the unhappiness that I created. And so there's a case for magical thinking weaves in with some very real world events. It's not all about sorcerers and magical spells, but there's a weave. There is a magical element here because they make the leap from something having 
actually no impact to believing it is the actual cause. And then that is very, very hard to untangle because, you know, the child's going to really feel pretty strongly that they had a role in this. Changes in children's lives almost always cause sort of like a pop-up of magical thinking. And I'm come now to the part, which I promised you earlier, about telling you how do you talk to a child when you finally figure out, aha, I think they're having some really magical, difficult thoughts about what's happening. I'm going to use as an example, before I get to even my son, um, something that happened constantly in my early childhood center, because invariably every year, at least one teacher would leave and the children would have to be told. And we always were very, very careful about this. We'd set the children down and we'd explain that, you know, Mrs. So-and-so was moving to a different city or whatever the situation was. And because I know that children use magical thinking quite a bit at this age, it's fraught with it in a preschool. I would try to use a parallel story as I talked about it in general. And I'd say, do you know that last year, Mrs. Smith left and her four-year-old class had a lot of big feelings about her leaving. They were upset. They were sad. Some people were even angry. And then I say to them, this is a key. Can you guess what are the kinds of things that they were angry and sad and upset about? And at first, the children would just say, oh, they just were going to miss Mrs. Jones so much. And then it would evolve into really, really insightful sort of statements. These are actual quotes from children. They said the teacher left because the children, we didn't line up fast enough. Or Mrs. Jones really doesn't like us. She thinks that we're bad children. They actually would come up with these things. And if the adults were not used to this, they would be startled. What? What are they saying? You think that Mrs. Jones moved to a new city because she didn't like you? Because you made a mess with the paints? So how can I respond to that? What we do is we use this social story or a parallel story. In this case, I used an entire classroom because I was talking to a class. In my son Jeremy's case, one of his friend's parents had gone on vacation. And I said, do you know that when Matthew's mommy and daddy went on vacation, Matthew was so mad at him. And then he came home and guess what? Matthew's mommy had broken her arm when she was on vacation and he got so worried and so upset. And then I would stop and I'd say, what do you think Matthew was upset about? And Jeremy actually said, well, because he was so mad that his mommy fell down and broke her arm. And then I get to say, you know, that even if we have angry thoughts and angry ideas and we say angry words and we even stomp our feet and do angry things, they can never, ever ever cause somebody to break their arm or to get sick. And that's how you begin to resolve it. Again, no magic bullet. But when you give them that initial idea, you could almost hear the sigh of relief. I wasn't the cause of it. They still have to work through things. It doesn't happen overnight. But it's a fantastic start. And it's a way for adults to truly connect to the child exactly where they are in that moment. I love that approach. And I'm going to say that it raises a theme that I hope we hit on in every podcast we do in Parent Talk. It's a major Parent Talk theme. And that is, it doesn't work to go directly at someone. If someone's, you think, a little off center where they need to be, you can't go right up to them and say, I think you're off center. You create a situation which the child's able to find their own way forward. And the parallel story is a beautiful way to do that. There's an adult parallel to the child's parallel story. So one is reading a book. So what's a book? 
it's a story not about you, but it touches you. It's parallel to your life. In fact, the only books we like are the ones that are really parallel to our own life. And the other is movies. What are the best movies? What are the movies that we like the best? The ones that really seem pretty close to what I experienced. So parallel movies and books and stories allow us to rethink how we've built our own narrative about our own lives. And so your example really, I think, touches on such a very deep and powerful fact about how we help each other. I just want to end by saying that we're going to add in our resource page a step-by-step on how to create a parallel story with your child. And just a final thought is that when your child is exhibiting behavior that seems completely out of character and becomes worrisome to you, take a step back and look and see what's been going on in your child's life. Could magical thinking be creeping in and making your child behave in a way that's not usual for them? Think about that and then think about how you can help your child through that challenging moment. And now we come to the end of this podcast. We really appreciate people tuning into Parent Talk and learning about our first step, exploration, magical thinking. There'll be others. We like to end every podcast with some reflection on how what we talked about reflects on some elemental aspect of what it means to be a parent. And the one here I think that applies is the concept of shared understandings. That is, we don't want to impose our understanding of the world on our child. We want to enter the mind of our child, see where they're coming from. And you can see how magical thinking is all about that and then help them make their next step forward where they are in their own mind and not necessarily just take on what we impose on them. So with that, again, we thank everyone for tuning in. We look forward to sharing other stories and insights with you at our next podcast. Thanks again for listening to the Parent Talk podcast. You can find back episodes and send us your parenting questions at parenttalkpodcast.com. And don't forget to visit our founding sponsor, Naturepedic, at naturepedic.com.